the world leader in Internet talk radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we have a treat in store. Of course, I say that often, <laughs> but we do. We usually do. Um, I'm very anxious to hear what this man has to say. His name is Charles Stone. He's the author of a new book called Hunting Eric Rudolph, and his co-author is Henry Schuster, who is actually uh, currently in England um, uh, studying and doing reporting on uh, terrorism over there. Now we're going to be talking today about a kind of terrorism that there is over here as exemplified by Eric Rudolph. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Dr. Carroll. Let's um, start with sort of a, an overview of how you got involved and what the timeline was of what Eric Rudolph actually did um, because one of the things that interests me looking over the timeline is how long he spent not in hiding before he went into the years of hiding. So why don't you just um, give us, tell us a story of, okay. of uh, all his atrocities. Uh, a little background. In um, 1996, I was supervisor excuse me, of the Georgia Bureau of Investigations Anti-Terrorist Unit and was assigned to the Atlanta Olympics. As such, I was I supervised an intelligence unit made up of undercover agents and officers from around the country outside of different venues. In July of 96, of course, a bomb went off at Centennial Olympic Park, which was the popular gathering place for both Athletes, people with tickets, and people non-ticket holders. In the <clears throat> excuse me, in the big scheme of things, everyone knew that the Centennial Park was a soft target. Uh, it had a lot of security, but people could basically come and go through gates, and it, it was nowhere near the hard target like the Olympic Village was. Mm. Uh, the bomb exploded. Um, the direct fatality was Alice Hawthorne. Uh, Mother and school teacher. Uh, the we had over a hundred casualties uh, with ex, with the I guess help for lack of a better description and the grace of God. Some kids were going to actually steal the bomb. They didn't know what it was. It was concealed in a backpack underneath a bench in a high point in the park, located at the foot of the NBC Sound Tower. Um, they were going to steal it, and in the process of thinking about it, they actually moved the bomb. Uh, when they moved it, it changed the trajectory of the shrapnel, which was mainly 8D cut masonry nails, and sent nails over the heads of the crowd as opposed to going through the crowd. Wow. Um, if the bomb had been left in its original position, we'd had hundreds of fatalities. The investigation started that night and, unfortunately, uh, quickly centered on the person who actually discovered the bomb, Richard Jewell. I think everyone is familiar with the fiasco that followed. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
unfortunately... He, he, what ultimately, he sued, didn't he? He sued several media outlets, and the majority of them have settled with him. I think the only, I believe the only outstanding suit uh, that has not settled is with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution hmm. uh, newspaper, in, the primary newspaper in Atlanta. Um, they have not settled, and I don't know the, I know the case is pending. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually had coffee with Richard a few weeks ago. He uh, has joined law enforcement in Georgia again and is working in a small town in northeast Georgia. Um, he was, you know, basically harassed unmercifully by the media, uh, by federal authorities, and by the general public. Finally, uh, he was cleared. The the fiasco with Richard, I think, was one of the proximate causes of the Southeast Bomb Task Force being formed. At that point in time, my agency, the GBI, ATF, and the Atlanta Police Department, for a short period of time, were brought in as full members of a task force. Uh, in January of 97, approximately six months later, a bomb went off in an abortion clinic. First responders got to the scene that the... The clinic was located on the north side of Atlanta. The bomb took out the clinic itself, which was located in a business. Fortunately, it didn't hurt anybody. After the first responders got there, a secondary device detonated, uh, wounding several agents. But fortunately, again, nobody was killed. In this case, Providence again intervened, and a passerby had been directed to park her car, fortunately for us, directly on top of and in front of the bomb. It absorbed several pounds of nails that were meant for law enforcement. Wow. Um, <clears throat> the bombs were certainly used similar. Shrapnel used um, steel plates as directional devices, uh, but the second bomb explosive was dynamite. The About a month later, in February of 97, uh, a gay bar uh, was bombed in Atlanta. Prior to the bombing, we had embarked upon a fairly large-scale uh, public safety training program where we actually trained officers what to look for and to be cognizant of secondary devices. And doing the research, we learned that having secondary devices was a very, fairly common tactic of the IRA. So fortunately, our training paid off. bomb went off at a nightclub. The first officers responding f- found the secondary device, hmm. um, were able to evacuate the club safely. Uh, we had one serious injury there. And then while we were trying trying to render the bomb safe, uh, it detonated. However, no one was injured. Um, the task force was in full swing then, and you have to consider the Olympic Park bombing. We had a park that had probably sixty to 80,000 people who were all strangers to one another located in it. So the the investigation was painstaking, to, to say the least. Uh, and then we had the forensic component where we were actually going back in and reconstructing the bombs. Um, we did. We had. We put suspects in and out of the case uh, through investigations, through alibis, things of this nature. But we didn't have a primary suspect. In January of '98, we uh, got notified that there had been an explosion at an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama. A police officer, Sandy Sanderson, was killed, and a nurse, Emily Lyons, was maimed um, very badly. Uh, fortunately for us, two witnesses 
uh, we identify them as witness number one, witness number two in our book. They uh, just a few weeks ago been publicly identified as uh, Jermaine Hughes and Jeffrey <coughs> Tickle, who's an attorney. Um, Jermaine actually saw, heard the explosion, looked out his dormitory window at UAB campus and saw somebody walking away. He took it upon himself to follow this person on foot hmm. and in the vehicle for several miles. He saw him change disguises. Um, he lost him running into a McDonald's restaurant. He used a telephone. Uh, Mr. Tickle. Wait, uh, who, who ran into McDonald's to use the phone? Oh, uh, Jermaine Hughes, the okay. witness who saw Mr. Rudolph. Okay. No, I wasn't sure if he did or Eric did. Yeah, right. So, uh, Eric was still on foot. He was fleeing. Uh, and and Jermaine ran in to call the police. Right. Mm-hmm. He did. Unfortunately, did not have a cell phone. Yes, I was <laughs> like any other college student. Like uh, okay. he did not have a cell phone. So he goes into the restaurant. Uh, Mr. Tickle, uh, an Alabama attorney, hears the conversation. Hmm. The description looks out the window, and lo and behold, there's hmm. Mr. Rudolph walking up the side of a mountain. Birmingham, Alabama, has a high mountain on the edge of the city. Uh, where they have a statue based upon the steel industry. But anyway, um, they actually see him again. They get in that cars, and a short time later see Mr. Rudolph getting into his truck. He, uh, Mr. Tickle first sees him, gets his tag number, actually writes it down on McDonald's cup. Um, Mr. Hughes sees him. He gets the tag number also, and they lose him in traffic. Um Unfortunately, um, that was the last time Eric Rudolph was seen by by you know witnesses per se until six months later. But what happens then is uh, he goes to North Carolina, his home, Western North Carolina. Wait, wait you mean? Well, wait, Rudolph. wait. Before we before we go to the six months later. Yeah. Um. Uh. At that point, in January of ninety eight, the next day, actually. Right. Um, there was a warrant for Eric Rudolph. Well, there was a, he was, there was not a, it was, it was, it's comically, one comical at the time, it's sort of a com- uh, comedy, uh, looking back on it. Um, the, a lo- lookout was placed for his vehicle and Mr. Rudolph. Um, the southeast is no different from California, New York. Word got out pretty quickly that we had a vehicle description and a name. Yeah. The, uh, media, uh, of course, Begin to broadcast it. Uh, the FBI in North Carolina, uh, working out of Asheville, had a meeting that night, which I attended as a member of the Southeast Bomb Task Force, in which they were trying to locate Mr. Rudolph. Uh, he had used several false and old addresses, and nobody could get him located at that particular time. The next morning, I left, came back to Atlanta with a picture of him, um, and got our intelligence people to start seeing what we could turn up in in the tremendous database we had at the Southeast Bomb Task Force. The agents on the ground in North Carolina contacted their state counterparts who began looking for Mr. Rudolph. They could not uh, locate him. Um, what, what we were able to establish happened based upon evidence recovered in his car. Mr. Rudolph mm-hmm. did not know he was wanted that day came into town the next morning following the bombing, rented some videos, went back to his trailer, spent the day there, went went yeah. back. Wait, wait, you know, yes, um, 
that part, I mean, that's an example of, of um, uh, what, I, what I found so interesting because he seemed so oblivious, even though, um, well, I guess he didn't know that, that these people had been following him. But also the video. Do you know what video he rented? Um, Crow the Conqueror <laughs> was the actual video that was not returned. Uh, he, he was a big fan of Cheech and Chong movies. Hmm. Uh, interesting uh, source because he, um, it becomes more interesting later on, of course, after he's arrested. But anyway, uh, because, well, the reason why I'm asking about that is because um, actually just last week and, and in general, I've been, um, last week I had a guest where we were talking about the impact of violent video games causing people to be violent, which is something that I've been an activist against for a long time. Um, so it was just kind of interesting to see videos, violent videos, um, popping up in, in this case as well. Right. I, the, I, I would assume by the title, I'll be honest, I've not looked at the video, Crawl the Conqueror sounds like a violent movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Cheech and John, of course, deals with marijuana usage in, in uh-huh. comedy. Um, well, that's the sound of our um, break music. Okay. <laughs> so we'll have to take a little break now. But we will come back and continue this saga, uh, one which you're intimately involved with, you have been for years, and uh, what you're sharing with us. My guest today is Charles Stone, the author of the new book, Hunting Eric Rudolph. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Informative. Educational. Insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Information you need, when you need it, voiceamerica.com. Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. 
Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race star. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Continuing to be the authority in Internet Talk Radio, you're listening to voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about hunting Eric Rudolph with my guest, Charles Stone, the author of a new book by that name. And... um, Mr. Stone was giving us a uh, a uh, timeline, essentially, of some of the horrendous acts that Eric Rudolph committed, starting with the July 27, 1996, Centennial Park bombing at the Olympics. Um, so go ahead. Let's continue where we left off. Okay. Uh, of course, in January 98, the Birmingham abortion clinic was bombed. That's the first time Eric Rudolph's name had surfaced. Um, the... FBI uh, does one thing right. They know how to build an intelligent database. So we began processing intelligence that night. Uh, I went to a meeting in Asheville, North Carolina, where the hunt for Eric actually began. Eric uh, lived off the grid. He never used bank accounts, credit cards, Social Security numbers, anything. He used Mm -hmm. cash. So he was difficult to track. I left the next morning, came back to Atlanta, and... uh, FBI agents on the ground in North Carolina contacted the, my state counterpart in North Carolina, and they began looking for him. They could not get him located. Eric apparently was oblivious to all this, and we can tell from receipts found in his car. He rented some videos. We talked about Crow the Conqueror. Um, the next day, uh, he comes back into Murphy the next evening, I should say, goes to Burger King, gets a value meal, and apparently hears a media broadcast that his name and truck mm-hmm. has been identified. He immediately goes to a grocery store, buys large quantities of dried beans, peanut butter, canned tuna fish, batteries, things of this nature, and is not seen again. In the meantime, the sheriff has contact uh, has located where he lives, and the FBI tells him to wait, not to go out to the trailer. And so they missed Eric for about two hours, and that led to a five-year manhunt. Huh. Uh, we uh, Wait, they they found his trailer, the, but they. They told the sheriff not to go in and not to arrest him. And why was that? Uh, they wanted to be there, and they, you know, they were concerned. And anybody can Monday morning quarterback. I think a lot of that with a Eric was a, a serial bomber, and of course, the sheriff's office at that particular time didn't have any bomb tech. So, whatever reason, they asked the sheriff to wait, and, and he did wait. The FBI got there about two hours later, and. Eric had fled. Um, but hadn't they, weren't they watching the trailer? <laughs> uh, no, uh, that's what 
they asked the sheriff to stay away from the trailer. The trailer was out in a rural isolated area, and it would have been difficult at best to get in there without being uh-huh. noticed. Uh-huh. Um, but unfortunately, they didn't. And a five-year um, manhunt started, the largest manhunt in U.S. history. Um, at the height of the manhunt, we had over 200 agents and probably half that many support personnel. We did not see or hear anything from Eric. Six months later, we brought in some people from the U.S. Forest Service, some survival people, tracking people, showed them what Eric had bought. Mm-hmm. And they said he could, if he was frugal, knew what he was doing, he would, he could probably survive six months, uh, in the wilderness. You have to understand that Western North Carolina, the, the forest he disappeared into, is very rugged, mountainous terrain of over a half a million acres. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not like a planted pine forest. It is pure wilderness. Um, Eric had received uh, training in the military. He had gotten he was in the military. Uh, went to air assault school. Tried to become an army ranger and couldn't because of an injury to his knee, and then got kicked out. He'd grown up in Western North Carolina. He was a marijuana grower. Uh, and he, he loved playing hide-and-seek in the mountains growing up. We established that through interviewing his um, family and friends. Uh, in July, he reappeared behind an old family friend's house, George Nordman, and asked for help. George, after, uh, I guess, a crisis of conscience, after about two days, contacted us and let us know he had seen that he had seen Eric and what supplies he had provided him and what he was wanting. That kicked the manhunt into high gear, and we brought in hundreds of agents from all around the country. Uh, we used technology ranging from bloodhounds and trackers to satellites and um, forward-looking infrared radar and things of this nature. Unfortunately, um, we were ever, never able to locate him. Advancing quickly to five years, in May of 2003, a rookie police officer with less than uh, 12 months on the job sees a figure dumpster diving behind a local grocery store at night, takes him into custody, and lo and behold, it's Eric Rudolph. He didn't know it was Eric Rudolph. He did not know it at the time. Mm -hmm. He thought he was a homeless person. He, He was holding a flashlight on a sling, a long steel flashlight on a sling in the officer when he just saw him thought it was a weapon. Uh-huh. When he ducked down behind the dumpster, the officer drew his own weapon, ordered him to come out, get on the ground, and the officer called for backup. Uh, Jeff Pacell, the, the uh, rookie police officer, did everything by the book and subsequently handcuffed him. A uh, deputy sheriff got there who actually knew Eric, and you got to keep in mind this is in a darkened area and they're using flashlights to see. Mm-hmm. He gets him off to one side and says, I think that's Eric Rudolph. They carry him back to the jail. They actually print out a picture of Eric off a website, hold it up next to his mm-hmm. head, and say, are you Eric Rudolph? He said, yeah, I am. And then they confirmed it about uh, 30 minutes later through APHIS, automated fingerprint identification system. And about 15 minutes later, I got a phone call <laughs> saying that Eric had been taken into custody. Wow. Now, do you think, have you, um, we're going to back up and talk yeah. about his family, but just in regard to his capture, do you think, 
um, that there was something that caused him. I mean, that was pretty sloppy after avoiding being caught for five years. Exactly. Um, do you think there was something that made him want to be caught? Was he tired of this life? Uh, uh, doctor, I don't, I don't believe he wanted to be caught. I think complacency played into it. He'd been on the run for, like you said, so long that he became complacent about security. Uh, I think mentally, if and this is just an educated guess, I would think he was tired. We had worked with a forensic psychiatrist concerning his need for human contact. And like I said, this area, when you see it, uh, it is a very rugged mountain area, and he had not had any human contact mm. with with people for five years uh, the psychiatrist we're working with said he probably satisfied his need for human contact by being a voyeur looking at people mm -hmm. and we're able to establish he told George Norman he looked at him for a period of weeks mm -hmm. before he finally made the approach but still I think the mental stress I think he was tired I think he'd become complacent coupled that with a good young aggressive police officer who remembered some tactics that he'd been called it taught at the academy, i.e. don't vary your patrol routine. And at night, if you're pulling behind buildings, turn off your lights. Mm -hmm. And I think the combination factors led to him being caught. Mm -hmm. Now, during the investigation, I spent a good bit of time with family members and um, former family members. I was the only agent to interview his mother. Yes, now that, that, <laughs> I would have loved to have done that. What did you find as um, far as, I mean, I know that um, she was supposedly very shocked that her son, that it could be her son doing all these horrible things. Yeah, she she was very taken back. Now, you have to keep in mind that I would describe her, she has described herself as an anarchist and then come back and say maybe, maybe she's more of a civil libertarian, but basically she did not like the government. When Eric was first identified, her trailer in Florida was raided like you'd raid a terrorist trailer. Uh, you know, it was done by a tactical team. She took great exception to that, hired a lawyer, and refused to have any further contact. Uh, we needed to interview her, and word had gotten out uh, in the militia community, especially that we are going to shoot Eric Rudolph on site, which was false. Uh, I had a good bit of good bit of experience dealing with the Klan and the militia movement in Georgia. And because I have a, a southern accent and not a federal officer, I was chosen to go down to interview I con and interview her, and it turned out her older son, Daniel, was there. Uh, I contacted her North Carolina attorney. He and I uh, got along well together. We're both hunters. And I told him what we wanted, and he agreed to it. So... We flew down to Florida, and I spoke to her from the standpoint of this is why we're after Eric. This is the evidence we have. If he makes any contact with you, um, we don't want to hurt him. We like, you know, we want to take him into custody. And she agreed. She and I, in fact, even after the interview and the attorney was gone, she wanted me to eat lunch with her, and I, I was afraid later on <laughs> that it might pose a problem. So I didn't. But, you know, we parted on good company. Now she, you oh, know, I thought you meant you were afraid of what might be in the lunch. Oh, no, we, 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 we met at a hotel down in Florida, but in, in anticipation for a, a long question-and-answer session, I, I brought in some bottled water, some fruit juices, soft drinks, things like that. 
when she and her son showed up, they brought in their own water in hmm. syrup bottles. Hmm. And I always wonder where they got that water. You know, they lived in a in a metropolitan area of Florida. You know what what was so different about that water than bottled water? But I didn't ask. Daniel, uh, her oldest son, who was a father figure to Eric, um, he, he was interviewed shortly after Eric was identified. Gave us some information that would have been useful in the prosecution of Eric if if the case had gone to trial. And about three days hence. Realized what he had done, so he goes into. Wait, wait, wait. Could you? What exactly did he do? Okay, he gave us some information that would have proved useful in the trial. Basically, he said that they had experimented with bombs. Yeah. Uh, growing up. Growing up. So you know that was. Wasn't that, there also something about that he identified the nine one one call from the Olympics? Yeah, uh, he, he when he. Yes, that's, that's how I break you. Go ahead and finish your sentence. Uh, he said, what does that prove? What does it prove? That it was his that brother it, on the 911? Yeah. <laughs> he was a concerned citizen, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> with, with premonitions of bombs yeah. going off. That's proved. Okay, well, we'll come back to this. My okay. guest, Charles Stone, the author of Hunting Eric Rudolph. We'll be back. Uh, stay with us. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some crust busting to do. Crust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the crust-free zone with me, Dr. Pat Vasily, and get ready to do some serious crust busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on voiceamerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific time for crust busting your way to an awesome life. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Cutting edge, challenging, stimulating. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com.
When tax time comes, are you the person that goes to your accountant with a shoebox literally full of receipts? Stop wasting your accountant's time as well as your own by organizing your finances with the help of Joe Dunphy and Poor Richard Shoebox. Heard live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Poor Richard Shoebox will let you know what you can do to organize for tax time as well as how to get the most out of your retirement. So get all of your receipts together and tune in to Poor Richard Shoebox with Joe Dunphy every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Business, sports, religion, legal, pets, entertainment. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest is the author of Hunting Eric Rudolph. His name is Charles Stone, and we're talking about uh, Eric Rudolph's uh, background. We just started talking about the family, which could be three shows in itself, it seems to me, <laughs> or, or more, each one of them, each one of the family members. Um, before we – there was a mother and a father. You were just telling me off right. the air. Um, the – the father was going to be a priest. What did he actually do? Uh, the father worked in the airline industry. <laughs> doing uh, what? Uh, doing, doing some some type of mechanical work. Uh-huh. And the uh, Patricia, his mother, had studied to be a nun. Uh, both his father and his mother left the Catholic Church, became involved with an evangelical Christian church down in Miami, and then his father developed cancer. Uh, from anecdotal evidence, the family became upset that he could not get lateral treatment in the United States, so he went to Mexico, received the treatment, but died anyway. Um, at this point in time, the... Which is so interesting because early on, this is an early example of, well, I mean, besides the religious um, story, which, you know, seems to be interesting itself, it's an early example of there being this distrust of um, mainstream society or distrust of the establishment because going for Laetril, um in those days, you know, was considered a, sort of a radical thing to do. So already we see that. Yeah, uh, that that's in Eric's formative years. They moved to, the family moves to western North Carolina to escape a lot of the integration and multinational aspects of southern Florida at mm. the time. Uh, prior to get, after arriving in North Carolina, they, uh, Eric, his brother, uh, his mother, Patricia, go on a sojourn out through Missouri and end up at the Christian Identity Movement. They spend several months there, uh, and was exposed to the religious bigotry and anti-Semitism of the Christian Identity Movement, and then they come back to North Carolina. Eric, uh, then goes into the military, uh, can't do what he wants in the military, and gets himself booted out. Unfortunately for us, he received a fair amount of explosives training and survival and uh, escape and invasion training in the military mm-hmm. that he puts to good use you know, later on. Uh, Daniel, the brother that served as a father figure, as I was mentioned before, was interviewed and after the interview, realized he could possibly have hurt his brother from a legal standpoint. He goes into his workshop at his house, uh, sets up a video camera, 
and then takes off his suit coat, puts a tourniquet on his arm, and says, my name is Daniel Kearney Rudolph, and this is for the FBI and the media, and uh, self-amputates his own hand using a power miter saw. Now, what was his... What was his rationale? What was good, the point of that? A good question, Carol. I have I have no idea. I, I've laughed and joked with some of the people on the task force that I'd had days I wouldn't mind holding some of them down and amputating their heads. But uh, I have no idea what he thought he would accomplish by doing that. Well, uh, looking at this from a Freudian point of view, <laughs> um, it, it represents castration, uh, taking away his power, perhaps... Um, you know, related to uh, uh, punishing himself for having done that. You know, it seems like perhaps the brothers had some interesting relationships with each other. Oh, they did. Uh, I agree with you about the punishing part. You know, I've, I talked to Daniel, but did not, did not bring up the, the self-amputation, but there's a lot of uh, biblical overtones uh, mm-hmm. with with the Scripture. And he could have been sending a message to Eric that, hey, no matter what they do, I will not tell them anything else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Eric's got another brother, Jamie Younger, who is a gay musician. Now, you have to put that in the context of he he bombed the gay bar in Atlanta. Yes. Now, you know, I, I was looking at the timeline, and what's interesting is May 17th to 19th, 1996, he visited uh, Atlanta for his brother Daniel's wedding. Right. And then right after that, July 96, is the first Centennial Palm Park bombing. So after he has this contact, his brother gets married, um, and he bombs the park. I mean, one has to wonder, again, psychoanalytically, whether there was some kind of sexual relationship between the two brothers. But because then the next um, instance is in um, September, October 96. Uh, he visits Jamie and Jamie's boyfriend in New York, and then January um, of that, well, January of the next, yeah, a few months later, six months later, whatever, he he bombs the family planning clinic and then bombs um, the next month the gay bar. So it seems like there is some kind of um, sort of um, some kind of psychodynamics here that are going on between family members that makes him explode, so to speak, in these. Um, in these bombings, with these bombings, you know, want to kill people. Want it seems like he something sets off a fury in him. Right. Uh, when you read the letters after the Atlanta bombings and the Birmingham bombings, he sent letters to the media. Uh, he did not take credit for the Olympic Park bombing. Uh, he did take credit for the gay bar bombing and the abortion clinic bombing in Atlanta. What he didn't know at the time is we had already linked mm. the bombs together through componentry, uh, a, a 100% match type componentry. Uh, and then after he bombs the Birmingham clinic, he sends a letter admitting to that. And he rants and raves about abortion, sodomites, but then he closes each letter with death to the New World Order, which is a militia rallying cry. So, yeah, there's some psychological dynamics ongoing, but I think it will take several years of clinical work with Eric to actually find out, you know, what was going on. Mm-hmm. Now, what kind of mental, what diagnosed mental illness are you aware of in the family? I, I do not know of any diagnosis as far as seeing something. We uh, we work with a forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Park Deeds, and 
part gave us a a psychological profile of him that said that he uh, was paranoid. Uh, that was anecdotally confirmed by talking uh, with his friends that before the bombing campaign, uh, he he grew and used uh, high grade of marijuana that he'd smuggled seeds back in from Amsterdam, grew a high grade pot. And used it a great deal. You know, that would feed his paranoia also. Um, yes, but it wouldn't necessarily um, be the sole cause of it. Oh, no, it. Usually no. that would be, you know, that would come into effect if there was some underlying mental illness. That right. That would be then exacerbating. But there's no history of any of his parents or his brothers being, or any cousins, anything, being in mental hospitals? No, n- nothing that has been determined. Now, you got to keep in mind that Eric's family, for the most part, lived off the grid. Um, they did not have what I would consider a normal family situation in that, you know, they didn't go, Eric was homeschooled. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to college, dropped out. He was a Holocaust denier. He wrote a paper. Mm-hmm. He's bri- bright from an intellect standpoint. Uh, he reads some um, uh, fairly heavy literature. Um but he cannot stand structure, which is going to be interesting to see how he fares, where he's going next. But um, yeah, so it seems it's interesting because it seems like whatever it was that caused the father to not become a priest and the mother to not become a nun seemed to be a turning point against the establishment, right. and they seemed to raise their children in that anti-establishment kind of view. But again, how in how? The rationale behind, you know, his gay brother is gainfully employed, and according to his mother, Eric accepts him. You know, he, uh, we have hypothesized about, well, uh, he loves the sinner but hates the sin, and then after his arrest and uh, in preparation for the trial, uh, the uh, plea arrangement was reached with the U.S. government. Eric's whole card, for lack of a better description, was the fact that he had over around 250, 300 pounds of dynamite that he had stolen. We located the theft, and he had stashes of dynamite hidden in the mountains of western North Carolina, including one completed bomb. That led to a plea arrangement uh, where he avoided the death penalty uh, by giving up the location of the dynamite. You know, and, and yes, I, I read about that, and it, it struck me that that could be set a very dangerous precedent. I mean, not that he's the first person um, to, to do a plea arrangement because of telling about something. Right. But, but you know, with the current um, state now of worrying about terrorists, <laughs> um, it would see whether domestic, grown, or foreign, it would seem like that would be uh, something that people could sort of put in the back of their heads oh, as yeah. a way to avoid the death penalty. That that was one of my concerns with it. Since I retired, I was not consulted on the plea arrangement, but I publicly, pragmatically, I understand why they did it. But from a personal standpoint, I'm a proponent of the death sentence in in several unique situations, and Eric fell into that situation. Yeah. He murdered a police officer. He murdered an innocent citizen. And only by the grace of God, he didn't kill several hundred people. Yeah. Well, we need to take another break. We will come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Charles Stone, the author of Hunting Eric Rudolph, and we will be talking more about it when we come back. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Getterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is voiceamerica.com. Depend on it. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Make Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dogs. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. The world leader in Internet talk radio. radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today I'm talking with Charles Stone, who is the author of um, the new book, Hunting Eric Rudolph. And interestingly, when Eric Rudolph uh, made his statement after being um, sentenced, um, the statement was dated April 13th, 2005. He added this P.S. and um, saying, I would like to clear up some misconceptions about me which are based upon the false information, innuendos, and lies disseminated by some unscrupulous individuals. A recent book written by former GBI agent Charles Stone and CNN reporter Henry Schuster carries many of these lies and misconceptions. And he goes on to talk about (laughs) how terrible you both are. Well, uh, Dr. I'll be honest, being called out by an admitted serial killer doesn't raise my uh, level. Uh, well, now, you're, now you'll go down in history, not just for the book, but... <laughs> <laughs> being called out by the, by the subject of the book. Yeah. Uh, the paperback's coming out in November, and we want to use part of that as on the yes, cover. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, a blurb from... <laughs> yeah, by admitted bomber, Eric right. Rudolph. You know. uh, we, uh, 
first of all, we'll stand by everything we said in the book. We have multiple sources. Uh, I find it somewhat unusual. One of the things that Eric took great exception to was the fact that I called him a major marijuana dealer. Well, that was based upon talking to various and certain people who had, who had actually dealt marijuana with him. Um, if somebody's dealing in pounds of marijuana, uh, you know, I think it qualifies for being a major marijuana dealer. He also uh, took great exception to the fact that I said that the death of his father uh, could have been a trigger. Well, yeah. I wasn't talking about the actual date of his death, but through anecdotal evidence, again, supplied by another person he condemns, Deborah Rudolph, his former sister-in-law, the family used to sit around and talk about how bad it was that the government controlled uh, lay it and wouldn't give it out to people and things like that. So uh, I find it... <laughs> so he blamed, um, in other words, if the if his father would have been able to get it in this country, he would have gotten gotten it sooner or been able to have more of it, that kind of thing. I, that, that is the assumption I would draw. But, yes. uh, you well, know, you know, it's interesting when people um, oftentimes, certainly as a psychiatrist and with patients, one of the... One of the basic concepts is that when someone um, protests too much, you know you've hit a nerve. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the idea that um, what, what Eric is is saying now the, about the whole thing revolved around abortion is contradicted by his own actions. Uh, I think he's trying to rewrite history uh, and uh, attract a following in the lunatic fringe of the anti-abortion movement. Uh, the the victim in Atlanta uh, at Centennial Olympic Park had nothing at all to do with abortion. She was an innocent person. So Eric, um, you know, sort of minimizes that in his statement. Uh, when he was sentenced two weeks ago in Alabama, I attended, I attended the sentencing, and Eric uh, preached, for lack of a better description, to the judge for ten minutes on abortion. Uh, at the end of 10 minutes, he quit, and then the judge imposed sentence and uh, talked to uh, Mr. Rudolph fairly sternly. Uh, one thing I do, don't want to let slip by you brought up, which I think is a, a very good point, is whether or not this, was, this plea deal establishes precedence in the future. Um, pragmatically, I, I understand why, why the deal was made, but uh, I think it leaves the door open for future terrorists to realize that, hey, if I need a whole card or avoid the death penalty card, what I have to do is conceal explosives somewhere. Uh, I think that's something that, you know, I think the prosecutors were caught between a rock and a hard place on what to do. Uh, the... Uh, I, you know, pragmatically, I understand why they did it, but from a personal standpoint, I can't think of any better person that deserved a death sentence more than Eric Rudolph. Stated that and that was nothing. Getting getting back to the statement he made after he entered his plea, when when he chastised me in his postscript was, "Here I am saying he's a dangerous, psychopathic, domestic terrorist," and he he, he doesn't even address that. <laughs> He's worried that uh, I call him a, a marijuana dealer. Yes, well, I think he's proud of being a domestic terrorist. It's the, it's the marijuana dealer that uh, isn't fitting with the, um, you know, uh, superhero image that he would like to have. I guess we should also say, um, for those who have not been aware of it, that um, 
Eric was sentenced to life in prison, correct? Right. He was, he was sentenced July 18th in Birmingham, Alabama for two life sentences. He'll be sentenced August, I believe it's August 22nd in Atlanta for the Atlanta bombings and he'll receive consecutive life sentences. It's my understanding that he'll be going to the federal supermax prison out in Colorado and he'll spend the rest of his life by himself, basically. Which is, uh, which is kind of what he got used to yeah. up in the mountains. Um, so, it, you know, I, again, I, I think his public statements, he's gotten hooked up with an anti-abortion website. Uh, his mother released several hundred pages of letters to USA Today. And, um, you know, a long-term psychoanalytical or psychoanalyst analysis of Eric would be possible sort of indirectly by looking at some of these letters, I think. Yes, I've read some of them, and they're they're very interesting. He's he's a very disturbed uh, man who who has no insight, really, into uh, into how disturbed he is and, and what made him that way. Um, and yes, he ha- he does he has kind of set himself up as a hero, and I think what's important is to make the um, the parallels with the terrorists, uh, the foreign terrorists, in the sense that um, twisting uh, a religion, twisting the Muslim or Islam religion, um, they use that as the reason, as the inspiration for their terrorist acts. And Eric has twisted um, his religion to make him feel um, guiltless for trying to bomb um, abortion clinics and, and uh, I mean, agreed that uh, that was not all that he did, but trying to say that there was a good religious reason for why he did what he did. Yeah. Henry and I talk about that in one of the, the ending chapters of the book. There's not a whole lot of difference between Eric Rudolph, uh, Muhammad Atta, the guy that died on 9-11, and Osama bin Laden. They all twist that particular brand of religion to justify heinous acts against innocent people. Yes, that's really very sad. Um, you know, I, I was reading something, not in your work, but um, about how there seems to be a decrease in domestic uh, terrorists uh, since 9-11. Are, are, is that true? or? Um, I think that the emphasis, and rightfully so, was shifted from domestic terrorism to international terrorism following 9-11. When 9-11 happened, even Eric Rudolph sort of faded from the scene. Unfortunately, Henry and I both believe that it's something that might not be on the radar right now, but it's something that can't be ignored. Unfortunately, most of the funding and everything is going for international Mm -hmm. terrorism, but Timothy McVeigh, Nichols, Rudolph were all products of the military following you know, the Gulf Wars and then the, cur- the current Gulf War. Unfortunately, there's no way you can screen or profile for a lone wolf type operator like mm-hmm. Nichols, McVeigh, and Rudolph. There's just no way you can actually screen for it. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Now, we've had the, um, the anthrax uh, problem here in America where anthrax is being mailed. That's probably going to be a, do, a domestic, domestic. Uh-huh. issue. We had the guy down in Florida who was purchasing explosives and stated that he was going to be the next Eric Rudolph. So there's been several incidents around, but they don't attract the press that a, a mm-hmm. large incident does because you just have one individual. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that they're not there. It just means that um, that we're not shining the spotlight on them. Although, of course, you know that when you get united against an, an outside enemy or a common enemy, that there could be uh, there could be some actual decrease in the desire of some people to. Uh, be anti-establishment. Exactly, or... and not to use scare tactics, but when you think right. about the concept of the law of terrorists are preaching, uh, if your enemy is my enemy, we can, you know, work together. Right, right. Um, and no one, no one likes to think about domestic terrorism because, bottom line, they look like us. Right. You know, it's not something that they can really identify. Or don't want to think exists. Right, right exactly. Um, before we run out of time, which is going to happen any minute, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> do give um, out your website or let people know how they can get your book. Um, you can order the book on Amazon.com. We have a website which con- contains excerpts and pictures, uh, huntingeritrudolph.com. Okay, and otherwise it's uh, just in regular bookstores and right. on Amazon.com and all of that. Well, Charles Stone, thank you very much for uh, sharing some of your really interesting insights. I'm glad the hunt is over. (laughs) (laughs) So am I. And um, you can get his book, Hunting Eric Rudolph, on huntingericrudolph.com or in normal (laughs) bookstores and ways that you get books. You're listening to Dr. Carol Lieberman. I'm your psychiatrist host. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on voiceamerica.com. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.